0: It is 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen through 34. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences uh, among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, For when you were eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. (laughs) Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. So, that when you meet together, you may, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So, uh, <clears throat> so, last week, about the love feast as a subset of our reflections on love. And, you know, we'll move on to another love topic after that. But, uh, you know, we've talked about the idea behind the Christian understanding of love. And the love feast is being, uh, I don't know, both ideas and practices that draw from a long kind of greek tradition and a long hebrew tradition and kind of mashes them together and like so many great things that the church does theologically and in practice and all those things uh it's uh i don't know we talked about it once as a strike over as a as a if you remember the series about uh, one of the series is about coins uh when uh, folks would write over roman coins something that uh, indicates the character of the person, the uh, the identity of of the faith. And so, like so many great concepts in uh, our the history of Christian thinking, agape and the love feast come together out of longer traditions and make something new and beautiful out of them. Love, as embodied in Jesus and practiced in the love feast and, I don't know, condensed in the idea of agape, is more than um, positive sentiment or intention towards someone. And that's something we've been talking about for a couple of weeks around the love feast. Jesus uh, gives us the love feast uh, both as a kind of reminder and a, uh, a kind of guide for how we might think about what it means to truly love God and to love one another. And so you know, the practice of the feast is a way of thinking about the very character of agape. It's a way of understanding how it is that we are related to and connected to one another and to God without division. And, you know, we saw it, uh, must have been, what, uh, two weeks ago, and uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 10, you know, the basic idea there was that if you accept an invite to the love feast, you can't come with a private image of God. Remember all those injunctions about idolatry? The kind of basic point was that uh, each one of us had to kind of eat together in response to and in reverence towards a vision of the person and the story of, and and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that uh, as a result, the goal was not to, I don't know, uh, come to the table with our own motives, our own understanding of who God is or what God is supposed to do for each one of us, but instead that we kind of come to that table to recognize and to remember and to worship and honor the sacrifice that was made for us, and we should do it. Uh, Paul starts talking about today with a a mode of uh, engaging the feast and eating the feast and celebrating the person of Jesus Christ that understands not only a kind of unified vision of who he is and who Jesus is, but a unified vision of what it means to be the body of Christ. And so we can't imagine the character of agape, the character of the love that we're called to, without thinking about it as embodied in this specific feast. And so this week we learn that That undivided vision of God is not enough. It's not enough. You know, it is, I don't know, if you want to get logically nerdy about it, it is necessary but not sufficient for the love feast to embody Christ's love. It's not only our vision of God that needs to be undivided, but the point Paul's making here is that our vision of the body of Christ needs to be undivided too, and that has radical implications for how we think about practicing love. Last week we talked about, or I guess it was two weeks ago, we talked about the idea that love is authentic. Remember that stuff about, like, stars that, uh, what, don't shine or trees that don't bear fruit? One of the markers of love in this context was the idea that when we come to each other in love, we have to be honest about who we are. We have to be authentic to who we are. We have to be frank about our own gifts and our own limitations, so that for us, for the Christian to love, and as embodied in the feast, is to be authentically related to The other person without pretense. It's, I don't know, it's a call for us to be in honest and full and deep, intimate communion with each other. And in that kind of spirit, Paul says in in verse 17, you know, he's not going to praise the people of the church of Corinth. He's got something kind of tough to say to him. And the thing that he has that's tough to say is that the way that they are practicing the love feast is doing more harm to the body than it is doing good for the body. You know, so Paul is. I don't know, he's being authentic, he's being honest, he's speaking in love towards this congregation because he wants them to see that communion's not just a fancy idea that helps us remember the idea of Jesus, but if the idea of the love feast is the embodiment of Christ's love, it'd be awfully weird if we thought we were doing highfalutin' important and great things, if we had a kind of piety about it, but we were practicing it in a way that made our vision of love empty. So the goal of Paul's kind of, I don't know, a zinger towards the congregation here is to get them to see what it would mean to have a full vision of love as embodied in the love feast. And I don't know, as you kind of get spinning through this, at first it kind of feels like, I don't know, uh, finger wagging and moralizing, but I think in the end it takes you a place that, I, I don't know, opens up what is so powerfully, radically beautiful about the Christian vision of love. He says in uh, 18 through 22, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you uh, to show who has God's approval. Sarcastic zinger, no, then. uh, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you were eating, you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes? Do you despise the church of God? Shall I praise you in this? No. Okay, so. One of the things that's really interesting about the structure of 1 Corinthians... What's probably the most cited thing in 1 Corinthians? Love. Love. love, right? And if you look at the structure of 1 Corinthians, it's really interesting to see that that kind of beautiful hymn to love is actually teed up by a fairly extensive discussion about the character of the church's practices in worship. And in fact, the kind of tee up to the vision of, uh, of love that Paul presents... It's precisely like three things. It's what are the basic practices that make worship orderly, it's how do you eat the meal together, and it's how do you think about a context where different people have different gifts. If you start to tie those things together thematically, what's the point? The point is, I think that as Paul lays out this vision of love, he wants in the background a vision of practice in love that emphasizes the character of the sacrifice that is made in love and emphasizes the character of Jesus's identity in love as kind of not only spilling over into the ideas that we have about the world, but really changing the way that we act. That's why Paul kind of says that in order for us to understand the beautiful reflection on the character of love, we kind of of work through the places of difference in the body. And as uh, the point that I made before, that it's not enough for us to have an undivided vision of who Jesus is or what we're doing, but we have to have a vision of the body of Christ, which is true to and informed by and directed by a vision of love as agape. So what's the problem in Corinth? It's, you know, it's not necessarily just that some people have eaten when others don't have something to eat. I mean, you know, I've all... All of us have had someone eat in front of us before when we were hungry. It's annoying, obviously, but I don't know if it rises to the level of demanding scriptural rebuke. And and nor is the problem that some people have eaten when others have not been able to. These are kind of symptoms... Paul is saying I think of a larger problem and the larger problem is this that the Lord's Supper is a point that should plane down and unify each member of the congregation it should unite them as a body in practicing love and the fact that for example some folks eat while others don't is not necessarily just about a violation in the rules of worship it is a way of asking the community whether or not it had fully and truly internalized the idea of agape as unconditional love and I'm going to unpack that a little bit here. If our understanding of love causes us to act in ways that divide us from the church, or the people we worship with, or celebrate with, or commune with, or engage in kind of any element of Christian community with, our vision of love is empty. Our understanding of love is not only based on the person of Jesus Christ, but it ought to implicate the way that we think about our relationship to each other and the kind of practices that we have. That's why Paul is, I don't know, kind of up in arms about the idea that some folks ate while other folks didn't because it was the main test of the idea of love. Can it be a love feast if some folks are feasting while others sit there, hands and stomachs empty, watching the well-off in the congregation eat we can say that we love the church and we can say that we love the people in it and of course we can say you know it's important for us to all take communion together but that kind of memory of who jesus is becomes empty in some sense for paul if it doesn't fully embody a conception of agape which is both about the idea of unconditional love and exercised unconditionally that's why it's important for paul for the love feast for Jesus even in instituting it to see the feast as not only embodying an idea, but embodying a practice that does what? What is the thing that this practice does that Paul says here and that Jesus says in instituting it? As often as we eat, what do we do? We proclaim the Lord's death. I want you to think about the implications of that and think about what it means for how we ought to think about the character of love because the point of agape is that we are to love each person unconditionally in the body of Christ. And if we really embrace that idea of unconditional love for others, then, I don't know, all the different things that we might imagine that create distinctions or divisions between us have to fall by the wayside on the test of love. Now, well, there's so much talk these days about what it means to have a political vision of Christianity or whether it politicizes Christianity to talk about questions of identity or of politics. And I think this is a commitment that for Jesus obviously transcends any vision of politics or identity or any cultural debate about who we are or what we are. Because the thing that is built into that meal, the thing that is built into that meal is the idea that each one of us is fully and unconditionally embraced in the person of Jesus Christ. Each one of us is fully and radically made in the image of God. And regardless, as Paul has pointed out so many times, of our status based on class or race or identity, or ethnicity, or status as slave, or gender, or really, really honestly, any other thing, anything that creates a condition of division within the context of the church is a way of refuting the idea that the vision of Christian community is what? One in which we are all one in Jesus Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile, man nor woman, slave nor free, etc. And if we really embrace that idea, that is, and if we abstract it from the crazy cultural debate about how we think about identity and difference and just look at what Jesus is calling us to do, what Jesus is calling us to do is to see each person as not only fully made in the image of God, but each person as one to whom God's love has been extended unconditionally. Without reservation. And as a result, if we are to model Jesus, if we are to model Jesus's idea of love in the love feast and in the context of agape, we are to learn to love in ways that eliminate conditions that separate or divide us from others so that we can fully see each person as Jesus sees them. And that's the thing. Like, we could talk all day about a vision of equity or a vision of justice or a vision of fairness or a vision of any of those things. Christians, and, and especially Jesus Christ, had a vision of that that says, before we were to get into any debate about that, the most central question is can you look each person in the face and see his face? Can you look each person in the eye and see that they are made in the image of God and a person for whom God was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice? That's the problem with the love feast, where some people have their private suppers and others do not, isn't it? It's that in the practice, there are some people who are full and happy and others who are ignored. And what, what's wrong with that? I think what's wrong with it is the idea that the vision of the kingdom is one in which the various differences that divide the fallen world no longer inhere, such that we see each person as a brother or a sister in Christ. Each person as a co-inheritor of the kingdom. Each person as a person, as Paul is making the point today and as Jesus has made the point, for whom we proclaim the death of Christ and Christ's resurrection. And think about how much that might change the way we understand the basic questions around what it means to really love one another. The divisions that define the world cannot and should not have primacy in our community. Paul's point is that in this instance, the question of material access matters too. It's not really about, I don't know, whether or not private property is intrinsically evil or something like that. It's about the idea that when we are together in community, the reason why the early church owned everything in common was not because of some mandate or because of some political injunction. but Rather, it was because to fully share in all the goods that we have is to see and to value the unconditional dignity and the the importance of each person to God. And so that's the point when we show up for the love feast is that to show up for the love feast is to see ourselves as being nourished by, as being fed by, and as being formed by our relationship to together remembering the person of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, each one of us is made different. Each one of us is, has a little bit of our private vision of who God is stripped away. Each one of us has a little bit of our private understanding of what makes us unique and great. Not quite stripped away, but put in a context where we see that our primary identity is in the character of the body. And that would change the way that we think about what it means to be related to each other with unconditional love. I think. Because outside the church, there's so many ways we can draw divisions between ourselves and others. But once you understand that the Christian idea of love your goal is, as, as, as kind of mandated here in Corinthians, and even from the words of Jesus, our goal is to do what? Is to see each person as fully and inexpressibly valuable because they are made in the image of God. Because what we do to each person, whether it be the greatest or the least, we do to the person of Jesus Christ. And that should compel us to treat each person as if we took seriously the idea that as we do unto the least of these, so we do unto Jesus. It's an incredibly powerful idea that... That the meal, the practice of the love feast and agape are so intricately tied here such that when we eat that meal, we declare Christ's death. I mean, you can't flinch from it. What's what's the point of the love feast? The point of the love feast is to remember Jesus' death on the cross. That's not just something that I kind of file away as, I don't know, life insurance or a perspective on the cosmos. It's something that I eat uh, the bread and I drink the wine and we do it together because we have a common vision of who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus Christ. And that idea should change things if we do it to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. It's not because that we should have a specific doctrine of equality. It's not because... We have a commitment to changing the social world, although we do and we should, but our primary commitment is to a doctrine of what it means to be loved by God. And that doctrine says something like that not only as we do to the marginal, we do to Jesus, but that doctrine also says something like each person individually, as we used to say in our good old-fashioned evangelical circles, would have been an object of sacrifice for Jesus if they were the only person in the world. Each person is a person for whom God has been willing to trade God's life. Each person is a person for whom God was willing to have nails driven into God's hands. Each person individually is a person who is infinitely worthy of God's love. And if we remember that we have been traded, as much as this doctrine's taken heat over the last couple of decades, there is something significant about remembering the idea that you are of such worth to God that God would have traded life and status as deity for you, because it affirms the intrinsic dignity and the character of a love that has no bounds and has no limits, that unconditionally reaches towards the other and sees in them something of beauty and sees in them the necessity to exercise an agape which is fully and completely unconditional. That's the point for us, I think, in thinking about remembering Jesus' sacrifice at communion and looking at the way that it's concretely played out in the context of our community. If we say that we believe these things in the abstract and we really, really, really understand that everything is given to us by God, that the cross is an act of grace, that each one of us is fully loved in that way such that God would trade God's son for us, then each one of us is, I don't know, a person of intrinsic and infinite value for whom each we are all entitled to exercise a love which is without limit, which is unconditional, and which calls us to be something different even when it's tough for us. That's why Paul is concerned about some people eating and some people not. It's not just a concern about the character of equity. It's about accepting a division that constitutes the fallen world in the fold of the church. And the church, we operate differently because we see and have fully internalized the gift and the sacrifice that have been made for us. That's why Paul says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he takes the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Man. To me, that takes the act of eating the wafer and drinking the wine and gives it a little bit of a different spin that each one of us is individually taking on the possibility and the benefit of that death and what Jesus has done for us. Each one of us is proclaiming that the terms of that death instill each one of us with a radical dignity that is a result of us being loved by a God whose love is without limit. I don't know if it means that Christianity is therefore a radically egalitarian vision of the social sphere. What it means is that Jesus calls us to be different, and that instead of asking what the politics of those commitments are and the implications of those commitments are, that, I don't know, instead we simply ought to remember the sacrifice that is made on us, or for us on the cross and in remembering that, we see the value that is extended to each person and as a result, we act in ways that the love that we express towards other not, others not only seeks to fulfill and to uplift and to edify them, but in their, when there are instances when doing that and when our own vision of who we are and what we're supposed to be gets in the way that we ought to yield so that Christ can be maximized. That we ought to be different so that love can flourish. And that that commitment is a commitment that is not one that is informed by the way our culture ought to think about it or debate about it. But we have always believed that, that God was killed in the most brutal manner possible for the most despicable humans that ever existed. And as a result, for us to say that some person is not worthy of love or worthy of that consideration is not to insult that person, but is to denigrate the sacrifice that Jesus made. Man, once that becomes the center All of a sudden, the vision of love that grows from the love feast as a means of embodying, practicing it, takes over our lives and it changes us and it demonstrates the depth of God's love for the world and the depth of God's love for each person. And it is a love that is so deep, as we constantly say to our kids, that it cannot be increased and it cannot be decreased, that there is a love, that there is nothing you can do that make God love you more and there is nothing that you can do that makes God love you less and that you were infinitely valuable in a way that justified that sacrifice and when we eat that bread and when we drink that wine it's not quite like a covenant in the sense that now that i've taken it i can access it but it is instead the material manifestation of a grace that is offered to me that i do not deserve and i cannot understand and that means for us that we ought to love without limit paul says that it is not our decisions that warrants a degree of, of care for other people. It's that Jesus is uh, asked us to do something that he passes on to Paul, and Paul passes on to us because the central fact of all history is that Christ has died and Christ has risen and that, Christ, that we too will rise in Christ, and that is not something that Paul is saying to be moralizing about or to chastise the committee, community. Instead, he's saying it as the basic foundation of all reality is the love that is demonstrated at the cross, and to eat together without difference demonstrates the character Of that love. That's why his sacrifice is a new covenant. It's not an exchange like the old one where you know, God and Israel kind of trade favors back and forth, but rather it is something that is offered to and extended to us, and each one of us is invited into it, and each one of us is sacrificed for, independent of what we think or what we do, and our goal then is to eat remembering that Jesus has done that for us. Our goal is to eat remembering that because Jesus has sacrificed for us, we too sacrifice ourselves, and we too direct ourselves towards the good of the other person. Not because God—not because it's commanded necessarily, although it is, but because God deemed you worthy enough to die for you. God deems you as a person with that inexpressible work. You are made in God's image and you are loved by God, but so is the other person. And as a result, to love the other person is to love God more fully and deeply than we could imagine on our own. That is, in fact, not only the triumph of the cross, but the triumph of of the resurrection and it is not because you are a wretch as we've been taught i don't think but because god decided that you and god is sovereign god decided that you were worthy to give up godhood and life for and that ought to reframe the way we think about fallenness not in the kind of silly moral terms that we often think about it those terms are important but our vision of fallenness i think has to be rooted in a vision of god who decides that that god ought to be traded for you And that that is a signal of God's love for you. And that is what you are in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is how you're valued. And that it's tough to hold together our vision of fallenness and our vision of that extension of grace. And we kind of get incoherent when we talk about it. But both things are simultaneously and fully true at the same time and embodied in that meal. That's the character of agape. That is the thing we are called to be and called to do. So when we come to that table, we come with a vision of God who has loved all of us, and we see each one of us as fully a recipient of and deserving of that place in the kingdom, not because of their own merit, but because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Questions or talk? is talking about divisions among people who are participating in communion in the love piece. Uh, what do you think you would have to say about people who are, the division between people who are not participating, like the outsiders? Do you think yeah. that vision of love, like what do you think it says to them? Yeah, I mean, I think... One of the re- reasons why I kind of wanted to dig in on the kind of cultural aspects of the Love Feast is that the, lo- the boundaries of the Love Feast tended to be pretty permeable. That's why we have all these fights, because there's slaves who are showing up with their masters and uh, people who uh, came from pagan traditions showing up with people who thought that it was an extension of the Seder or whatever the meal was. And so I think built into this logic of the Love Feast is because that sacrifice is made for everybody... Everybody is invited to come to the feast, and everyone is invited to, you know, it's very part of my Lutheran roots, I guess, ELCA roots. But because each person is invited, each person also has that kind of dignity and that kind of value. The question is when we're together as a community, do we treat the others in the community as if they have that kind of dignity in a way that eliminates the various kinds of distinctions that might pop up? So it puts a different claim on what Christians ought to do, kind of as an ethical thing. What we ought to do is say, am I partaking of this worthily? Am I doing it in a way that reflects the character of Jesus Christ? And to take it unworthily, Paul says, is to bring judgment on yourself. Where does that judgment come from? Well, I think the vision of judgment there is that if you're participating in the feast, you recognize the radical act of grace that happens at the cross, and in fact you celebrate it. But if you look at another person who is also celebrating it, and your heart isn't broken for the difficulty that they're experiencing, then you haven't fully internalized the idea that everything that you have is a result of a radical act of grace. And so the claim on the Christian, because the Christian knows, is different. right? The claim, each person has that kind of value. Jesus Christ sacrifices for each person. But Paul is saying when it comes to this community that is intentionally organized around celebrating the love feast that there's a different level of kind of ethical scrutiny that we have to apply to all the differences that pop up when we worship and celebrate together. I think anyway, but I'll take alternative takes on that. Anybody else? Dan? In the early church, even though the slave and the at this love feast together,